What's up, y'all? Welcome to the next episode. I hope you all have a fantastic week. Thanks for joining in on the fun. If you've ever thought to yourself, I'd love to get started in real estate, but I just don't have the time nor the desire to manage properties, manage contractors, manage property managers, and all that other stuff that comes along with investing in real estate. Well, guess what? This episode is for you. Jeremy Roll is a legend in the passive investing real estate community. He started investing in real estate and businesses in 2002 and left the corporate world in only five short years to become a full-time passive cash flow investor. He is currently an investor in more than 60 opportunities across more than $1 billion worth of real estate and business assets. He's the founder and president of Roll Investment Group, which manages a group of over 1,500 investors who seek passive and manage cash-flowing investments. Jeremy has an MBA from the Wharton School and is licensed in California as a real estate broker. All right, let's get started. This is the Passive Income Attorney Podcast, where you'll discover the secrets and strategies of the ultra-wealthy on how they build streams of passive income to give them the freedom we all want. Attorney Seth Bradley will help you end the cycle of trading your time for money so you can make money while you sleep. Start living the good life on your own terms. Now, here's your host, Seth Bradley. Jeremy, nice to have you on the show, man. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. You are you're a famous guy in, in my circles. <laughs> I, I definitely don't consider myself famous. My kids would laugh if you said that, I think. <laughs> well, for our listeners that uh, don't necessarily know who you are, you know, tell us a little bit about your story and, and feel free to brag a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm not the bragging type, but okay. Um, so, um, I am uh, originally from Montreal, Canada, and I uh, moved to uh, Philly in 1998, uh, graduated in 2000, over did an MBA at UPenn or Wharton, and then came out to LA and I've been here since 2000. And basically on the investing side, in 2002, um, I started to look at these types of investments, what I call passive cash flow investments, in alternative opportunities like real estate and other things, um, after the dot-com crash, for, for anybody out there who remembers that, because I know it was a while ago. And really, I was sick and tired of the stock market for two reasons. One was the, um, the volatility. So, you know, for the stock market to go up and down 30% of year, just not for me. I'm just a very low risk personality, like a slow and steady guy. But I think more importantly, frankly, and more bothersome was the lack of predictability of where my retirement account was going to be in 10, 20, 30 years with the lack of predictability of the stock market. So I started to look at different ways to invest. And I kind of concluded eventually that the low risk passive cash flow route was the best fit for me because I thought I'd be able to get more predictability. And it was really that predictability I was looking for. So I ended up um, starting investing in 2002 in these types of opportunities in real estate. And then long story short is that uh, by 2007, I ended up leaving the corporate world after I had enough cash flow built up to live off of. Now to be clear, I didn't have a plan. Like I talked to a lot of people who have a plan and say like, I'm gonna invest X amount per year. I'm gonna get out after five years, 10 years, whatever the number is. I actually didn't intend on leaving the corporate world. I actually intended on um, staying in the corporate world and having the paycheck and the cash flow. Just again, the cash flows for more predictability on the, on the saving side and on the retirement side. But I had a last strong moment in the corporate world, had enough cash flow built up to live off of. So I took the risk of leaving. And um, you know, as it turns out, the last strong moment ended up being like the best thing that ever happened to me after 10 plus years in the corporate world. Um, and so I've been a full-time passive cash flow investor since mid 07. 
Um, and I think we're recording this now, like end of 2020. So it's been, I guess, about 13 and a half years now. Uh, but I've been investing in these types of deals. Um, I think in February, it'll be 19 years. Um, so it's been a long time. That's incredible, man. Congratulations for, for getting out of that W-2. Thank you. Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> I, I had a great job. I was very fortunate. I, I, my last job was at Toyota headquarters. I was managing a pricing analyst like across like Lexus, Toyota and Scion pricing. Um, I was at Disney headquarters for several years. I worked across all the major brands for DVD VHS, for those of you who are old enough to remember that. Um, <laughs> across all the, like Disney, Touchstone, Miramax, Dimension, ABC, ESPN, Baby Einstein, all these things, right? I had some great jobs, but I honestly always felt that there was something missing for me in the corporate world. I always felt like I was just one piece of 10,000 person organization and wasn't making a big enough contribution, but I always had a passion for investing actually. So I'm very lucky because the full-time focus for me is great, not just because I have more freedom, but I actually always had a passion for investing anyway. And um, this turns out to be a very, very good fit for me. So I'm just very lucky. Gotcha. Gotcha. So did you have really an aha moment while you were working that W2 or was it more just your observations of kind of traditional, uh, traditional types of investments? that got you to start investing in alternative investments? Yeah, well, it was really, it was that dot-com crash. So, you know, watching yeah, the market go down, watching the market go crazy, looking at valuations that didn't make sense, and then watching it go down, and then wondering what's going to happen in the next 10 years with my retirement account, just that whole lack of predictability. You know, 19 years later, my number one focus today is still predictability when I invest. And so that's what I've really honed in on. That's what I try to get away from, from the stock market. Gotcha. So why do you think your journey resulted in taking a passive approach to real estate as opposed to getting into flipping or, you know, taking a more active, active approach to, to buying property? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I first started, I was way too busy at work. I was very, very busy at work. So I couldn't do anything actively and just have enough time to do both. And so yeah. I ended up going passive by default. And what I learned actually is because I'm a very big believer that active versus passive is somewhat circumstantial, but a lot to do with personality as well. So for example, when I left the corporate world and I had all the time in the world, I actually didn't become active. And the reason is because I love analyzing opportunity, vetting opportunities, networking, finding opportunities. And I love like finally finding a good one, right? Because it's hard. Um, I mean, I talk to people about this all the time. I would absolutely hate, you know, managing a building uh, because then I'm kind of back in the corporate world again amongst people like that, you know, managing things. And that's not what I like. So all the work that I do is upfront. And I love the fact that I'm able to leverage people's time efforts, experience, credit. Um, and, and, and also I get to invest across very diversified across a lot of asset classes. And if I was going to go active, I'd be much more concentrated, probably both geographically, but also by asset class. So there's, there's pros and cons to both sides, but it just turns out that the passive side is a really, really good fit for me. Um, and I would encourage anyone out there who's just starting, who hasn't really thought about it to think really hard about which one is a better fit for you, because there are some people who are active only because they, they want to be within driving distance of where they want to invest. And that's very hard to do passively, right? There are some people who are active because they want to be able to decide when they want to sell their properties. And if they want to refi, sell, hold, you know, hire and fire a manager, they just want the control. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. They, I, I trade control for diversification is my perspective on it, but some people aren't comfortable trading control. So that's another good reason. Then there are passive people who are either too busy, don't mind giving up control, want diversification, you know, so it's a really good fit for me, but if it's not the right fit for you, be very careful because once you invest in a passive opportunity, you're often locked in. A lot of people don't know, but I believe it's illegal to sell your shares for the first year. I'm not an attorney, but I think that's my understanding. And there's no flipping. It's anti-flipping law of shares. I think it's called rule 144. And long story short is that like, it's, you're very illiquid when you get into these types of deals like funds. 
So don't go down the path of investing in two, three, four, five passive opportunities and then wake up one day and say, this is the wrong fit for me because coming back down from that path is very difficult. Right. So, you know, some of the negatives right there are the liquidity and the control issues, but, you know, you get a lot of positives by not having to actively manage the properties and being able to diversify. Yes. And I think the liquidity piece is going to change here in the next three to five years. It's going to start to change, I think, next year in 2021. But I think it's going to really change in the next five years. I think that um, some of the crowdfunding sites, some of the rules have changed recently. Um, there's actually a company I invested in. I, I, I do a handful of startup investing, like 1% of my focus. And I very luckily, I invested in a company called Start Engine, which is the largest equity crowdfunding website in the US. They just launched a stock market or stock exchange. I call it like the stock exchange for startups. That, that's not what they call I call it. So, and, um, you know, I think eventually there'll be real estate offerings on that stock exchange. You'll be able to invest in a deal on their platform. They crowdfund it. And then within a week, your shares are liquid, right? And so that's, I think that's going to change over time. And it will also allow for additional diversification to people who are just are used to having regular stocks right now that are available to them. But for now, you're right. The liquidity is definitely a, a challenge for sure. Yeah. And I think the introduction of blockchain technology as well, will be able to make that liquidity problem go, go away as well. Have you heard anything about that? You know, I, I really know very little about blockchain. It definitely fascinates yeah. me. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't know if you heard about this, but um, this, I think the second largest bank in the world in China, okay, just was about to do a bond offering for billions of dollars blockchain based. And I think they just had to pull it. Now, I think they pulled it because the government put some type of pause on it. But the point is like the blockchain is real. I mean, that's the second largest bank in the world that was about to issue billions of dollars of bonds on the blockchain, right? Or using the blockchain. So um, I think it's real and it's going to probably end up, to your point, helping a lot of transactions. But I, I'm not... You know, I, I don't quite know enough about it to really give anybody here good insight about it. Yeah, gotcha. Let's let's go back to the diversification point. So, you know, a lot of our listeners know how to diversify their portfolios with respect to their traditional assets. But, you know, how have you diversified your passive investing in commercial real estate portfolio? Sure. Great question. And, you know, I just want to give everybody the kind of I'm not an investment advisor or financial advisor. So anything I'm sharing here is just my perspective as an investor. Um, so, um I try to diversify across asset classes, geographies, and operators. And I think all three of those are really important. And so for geographies, it depends on the asset class. Some asset class I'm willing to invest in certain geographies. Some of them I avoid because of weather, because of economic condition, um, because of where the population is projected to migrate to. There's all different types of reasons, right? Um, operator, very obvious. I don't want to have all my eggs in one basket or too many eggs in one basket. I want to try to avoid a Madoff type situation. And unfortunately, like you can never get that risk to zero in this type of investing, right? There could be fraud, mismanagement, um, all different types of things. And you could diversify to get the, the, to reduce the probability of a problem, but you can never get it to zero. And um, I really think diversification across operators is critical. And asset classes too. Asset classes are tricky because society needs change over time. And I think one of the hardest parts about determining asset class diversification is you know, if you're investing for the long term, like me, and I'm typically looking at a lot of five or 10 year deals, look at a 10 year deal, you have to have confidence that if you're going to go into an asset class today, there's going to be demand for it in 10 years and society won't change enough. So for example, can anyone tell me how self-driving cars are going to affect the, where office space is located and demanded? Is someone going to be willing to sit in the car for longer and do work on the way back? Are they going to have a coffee and no problem watch a TV show with no big deal, right? Or are they going to want it right next to them? So there's a lot of questions out there about evolving technologies and evolving consumer needs. 
Um, and you've got to be, you know, kind of take all those into account. You've got to do as much research as possible about the future and think as far ahead as possible to avoid what I call like the landmines, right? That, you know, you could potentially avoid. The biggest problem with passive investing is that you're kind of like on this freighter ship that's got a thousand containers on it and it can't turn very quickly, right? If I want to go <laughs> the iceberg, I've got to think way ahead. It's true because once I put my money in, I'm locked in, it's e-liquid, it's very hard to get out. It's not impossible, but it's hard to get out. And, you know, you've got to really think far ahead. So I think that piece is very important too. Um, for someone like me who looks for predictability, I could tell you like the top four asset classes right now in my mind for the next 10 years are apartments, um, mobile home parks, self-storage, and senior living. Now, the re I can give you the reasons behind each of them, but the point is all four of those, I believe, have the most predictability compared to a really easy example, you know, retail and closed mall or office building. What is demand going to be for those in 10 years? Much harder to predict if I'm looking mm -hmm. for predictable cash flow. So by the way, those four asset classes, it doesn't mean I'm just going and investing in any of those asset classes. doesn't even mean I'm doing it right now in the middle of the pandemic, but I do think that those are going to provide the most predictability over the next 10 years. So um, when I'm thinking of diversification, there's a lot of different factors that come into play. And, um, you know, I, I'm honestly like a, a bit of bias towards diversity. Like I'm a bad person to ask because I'm currently in over 60 LLCs. I've been in over 100 LLCs in the past 19 years, very easily, like much more than that. In fact, I was in over 30 sales in the last four years and I'm still in over uh, 60 LLCs. So wow. I kind of am hyper diversified and it's not what I recommend for anyone else. It's a lot of work. Um, I do it full time and I love the diversification concept. So that's why I do it to that extent. But I think most people probably end up slicing their passive investment pie into maybe 10 or 20 or 25 slices is the most common that I see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Your pie is much larger than, than most folks. <laughs> yeah. And you know, again, it's, 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 but it's, it's a choice though. So I can actually make my life a little easier, but I love being diversified across, across a ton of asset classes, a ton of operators, even some geographies. It just, in, in some sense, theoretically, it should increase the predictability. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love for you to go into those four asset types and, and just kind of sure. briefly say, you know, why, you're, why you're bullish on them. Absolutely. So again, this is just with the idea of what's going to have the most predictable, stabilized cash flow, because I look for stabilized cash flow, right, for the next 10 years. So mobile home parks, one of the easiest, because mobile home parks has the lowest turnover of any asset, major asset class that I'm aware of. So for that alone, plus the fact that a lot of people don't know, there's a very small supply of mobile home parks in the U.S., and there's actually a reducing supply every year because a lot of them get bought out and they're kind of in the path of progress as, um, let's say, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm, I'm blanking on the word, but when like a, a city is expanding further out, right? So they get bought out and then um, they get torn out and maybe single families uh, homes are developed on them. So the, the number, the supply reduces every year, the turnover is very low. And so therefore, because the turnover is low, cash flow is pretty predictable compared to a lot of other asset classes, relatively speaking, right? So, and I also think there's going to be a continued need for affordable housing. And unfortunately, I think there's a huge lack of affordable housing in a lot of markets in the U.S. So I think there's going to be strong demand there, right? So uh, apartments, I think everybody has to have a place to live. I think that's the default place for a lot of people who aren't in a position to buy a home or don't want to live in a home. And I think that if you're in the high demand economy, as long as you're choosing the right economy with the right population growth that's projected for the next 10 years, if you're in an infill market, especially, and you've got a good manager, I think there's going to be a lot of predictable demand, especially if you're going into a building that's highly occupied at the moment, even 100% occupied, for example, right? Now, mm -hmm. I would say this. One thing I'm being very careful with, though, is I tend to target class B buildings. And in those buildings, um, you know, some of the 1980s and 70s buildings tend to have eight-foot ceilings, and some of the 1990s and 2000s buildings have nine-foot ceilings. So to me, I'm staying away from anything that doesn't have a nine-foot ceiling as, an, as a rule, because thinking 10 years out, 
given that younger people are demanding higher ceilings in general, if you have to go sell that property in 10 years, it could turn from a class B to a class C property in 10 years. Hmm. So that's an example of thinking ahead. And that's one thing I would just put aside. It's an important thing to think about if you're looking at apartments and you're looking at them like I am. Um, and then so senior living. So if you look at the population statistics as of 2023, roughly, there's meant to be a pretty big surge in demand for senior living. And I, I frankly think senior living, the best time to have gotten into was probably between 2017 and 2022 on a 10-year horizon to sell into that wave um, down the road. Um, but there's still a little time. And I, I think that even without that, you'll still probably be in good position. Now, senior living amidst COVID, I've been completely waiting on and delaying on because COVID can still hit um, a senior living facility and that could be quite devastating. And, and also if it does happen, then um, you know when you have turn, getting those new people in in a place that just had COVID, it, it, people tend to stay away from it, right? They're not running to yeah. go in. So, uh, but once that's done, I think that uh, that's gonna be a really good look with the right manager. Now it's complicated. Senior living has many, it's a very unusual asset class. I mean, there, there's literally as simple as like age restricted community, which is basically a 55 plus apartment, very like almost like an apartment building all the way through to like memory care and major, you know, care where you have like a, a lot of intensive care that requires a lot of uh, employees and it's a very difficult to run business. Now throughout that spectrum, the returns are all different and there's a lot of different verticals in between assisted living um, and all that type of thing. And so, you know, you've got to really research that, that asset class and understand where you want to play, like what return risk, risk for return ratio are you looking for? Um, and which, which verticals make the most sense for you, even within that asset class. So it's a little tricky and it's hard to operate for sure. Um, Self-storage, I think in the Southern states, I think that a lot of people are either um, aging and going to be retiring and having to downsize and maybe store some stuff, or they'll be moving further South, which is already happening. And they may need to store some stuff if they're moving down, especially if they're moving down to retire and downsize. So I can see self-storage um, being pretty popular for the next 10 years. I will say though, that you've got to pick your locations right with self-storage. Self-storage has low barriers to entry as far as new construction. And because of that, it's kind of well known to have some overbuilding in some pockets at times. So you've got to be very careful about your supply of the market that you're going into. So th those yeah. are the four, yeah, I like those four a lot. Um, not, a couple of them are not the easiest to run. So you've got to be very careful with the operator you're picking. Thanks, man, Jeremy. There was so much knowledge in there, so much. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. So, you know, let's say you come across an interesting deal. Maybe you haven't, um, haven't worked with that sponsor yet. You know, how do you start conducting your due diligence to decide if you're going to invest from a passive investor standpoint? Yeah. So, um, that, that we can talk about for like three hours, um, <laughs> but I'll try to keep it high level. So, um, I'll say the first thing is that, you know, a, if I'm looking at opportunity, does it fit in my box? Is it 80 to 100% occupied, stabilized class B property in kind of an A minus or B area with an experienced sponsor with a diversified tenant base that's pretty stabilized and maybe may or may not have any value at upside, right? That's my box. So a lot of them won't meet that box because development or too high value at, or maybe it's in the wrong location or maybe it's the wrong type of asset class or, you know, with, uh, not class, but type or quality within the asset class. So I'll filter that. The next thing I do, because remember, I invest for cash flow and predictable, more stabilized cash flow, is I'll look at the cap rate, which is the inverse of the multiple that we're paying on the cash flow. That's very important to me because unlike a major value ideal where you're going to add a lot of padding, um, if, if we're not adding much padding in the business plan, then I've got to buy it right because that's where I can create some padding or at least avoid having a problem down the road. So I'm very, very honed in on the cap rate. And I get to filter a ton of stuff out based off the multiple. 
After that, if that works, I'll take a look at the investor structure and fees to make sure that I think they're fair from an investor perspective. Um, and then if all that checks off, which by the way, a lot of stuff, most of the stuff weeds out from just those steps alone, <laughs> then I'll start to dive into the pro forma. I'll ask a ton of questions. I'll read the entire business plan. Do I agree with the location? Do I agree with the comps that they ran for rent and sales comps and all kinds of other stuff? I ask a ton of questions. I am trying to size up from a very high level. Am I making a bet on someone who's conservative and experienced, who's trying to underpromise and overdeliver for our investors to build long-term relationships with investors? Or am I looking at deals being presented to me with someone who's being aggressive, making the numbers look really good? Because you can definitely, there's a lot of assumptions and that means you can make the numbers yeah. look really good if you choose to. So am I looking at a deal that's being very aggressive and maybe overpromising, setting itself up to underdeliver? And therefore, the person I'm making a bet on is not conservative, maybe a really good marketing machine, though, who is just kind of like trying to attract investors and maybe going to go on to the next investor when, you know, their deal underperforms with me. So at a very high level, that's what I'm looking for. And I also tend to be very conservative. So it lines up well with my personality. Um, you know, I'm going to do background check for sure. Always on the managing members, I'm going to read the operating agreement and the PPM, make sure I agree with the rules, and understand the risks um, and ask a lot of questions and size up who I'm making a bet on. I typically will not invest with someone unless I've met them in person at least once. So I like to fly to the property and meet them in person, have me walk the property with them and even the area and get a sense for how thorough they are. You get a really good sense for how thorough they are by doing that type of visit with them. And in the end of the day, it's all about a gut check. So you take all these things up, add them up. And then, you know, the gut check is, should I make a bet on this person or not? I think the gut check is really important because the numbers can look fine, but if something's telling you not to invest with somebody, you just move on to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. I love that gut check idea, man. So, you know, you mentioned that there are a lot of assumptions you can make in your underwriting and, and the pro forma. What are, what are some of those red flags to look out for? I would tell people some of the common things to look out for is, is the preferred return high enough that it makes you comfortable? Um, do you agree with the profit splits? I mean, a huge red flag immediately would make you throw something in the garbage is if the investors are getting below a 50-50 split of the profits above the preferred return. I think that's completely out of market. And once in a while, I see that and just an automatic red flag. Another red flag to me is take a look at the cap rate they're assuming on exit compared to what they're buying it for. I saw a deal recently. It was a retail deal, a retail strip center. And I think it was repurchased about an 8.2, 8.3 cap. But the assumption was that they were selling it a seven and a half cap. And with the way the retail environment is these days, that means that person's assuming they're going to get a better multiple down the road for a retail strip center. And if anything, you'd like to think that somebody's gonna assume they're gonna get a worse multiple with more and more right. purchases going online, right? So when you see that, you're like, okay, they're trying to make the numbers look better, you know, on to the next, right? Um, yep. You agree with the uh, average rent assumption, inflation assumption that they're putting together. So if somebody says rents are gonna go up 10% a year, that's gonna flag big time and I'm just gonna move on to the next, right? So you wanna make sure that's reasonable. And you agree with all the expense assumptions and the expense ratio, does that look reasonable to you compared to what's normal in the asset class? Because that can stand out in a bad way. And if, you know, again, they can manipulate the numbers by assuming low expenses to increase in that income, right? So mm -hmm. that could maybe be a very big red flag. You move on to it the next. Um, if the business plan is too aggressive, doesn't have enough padding built in, doesn't have enough reserve built in, um, doesn't assume, you know, um, a, 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 I guess, conservative cost structure, if you're going to do like rehab, for example, um, all different things can flag very quickly. And I'm a very big proponent of the fact that there's so many deals out there that unless you feel 100% comfortable with the deal, you really should just move on to the next. So any one of these things could potentially make me move on to the next, depending on the degree that you're seeing it. You know, those are just some quick examples.
Gotcha. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. So I think a lot of our listeners are thinking, man, I don't get to see any of these deals you're talking. There's deals left and right and left and right. And some folks just, you know, they don't have exposure to it. So, you know, how does someone get started um, kind of, you know, getting exposure to these deals? Where do they find them? Who do they talk to? Yeah, great question. So, you know, um, it depends on their situation. So I am able to network full time. And that's how I find a lot of deals. I've also got the benefit of having 19 years of networking under my belt to make it easier for me to find deals. I will tell you, the number one more challenging part of every day I have is actually finding deals still 19 years later. It's the hardest part of my day. So it it never really gets 100% easy. But um, so there's a couple different ways somebody can go about it. If you are interested in networking and have the time, there's local meetings. If you're in a bigger city on meetup.com is a great resource to search for local real estate meetings. Just be very careful. Some of them are sales pitch meetings and some of them are good meetings. I would recommend going to the bigger meetings to have a bigger critical mass of networking, right? So that's number one. Um, number two, um, again, if you have time to network, there's a lot of very good conferences that have come up in the past few years that um, are designed for real estate investors to network, meet each other, and meet sponsors, right? You're not going to find direct deals there. Same thing with the meetups, but these lead you to eventually finding deals through networking. Um, these are currently being done virtually, but I'm guessing they're going to revert to being in person maybe in 2022. But for now, the great thing about them is that you can attend these meetings without traveling. You're not going to save time and money on travel. The conferences are costing less online. And some of them still use software tools to allow you to get a lot of networking out of it. Right. So that's another option. Um, If you um, aren't interested in networking, right, and maybe you're too busy to network, there's a whole bunch of options as well. But those options, you see, the the, the ways I mentioned before are actually finding deals directly. And you're going to talk direct to the actual sponsors or operators. If you don't have the time or interest to be able to network, but you still want to find deals, there's a couple other options. But just note, you're going to be going through the intermediary and the returns are going to be a little lower for the same level of risk, right? That just makes sense. So you can look at crowdfunding websites. So I'm actually an advisor for a website called Realty Mogul, uh, which is, I think, the largest uh, equity crowdfunding website in the U.S. for real estate. And, um, you know, that's just one of many, right? So you visit whichever ones you want. Realty Mogul is a good one, but there's many other out there, right? You'll, you can go in your pajamas at any time if you're an accredited investor and then find deals on there. Even if you're not an accredited investor, they have funds designed for non-accredited investors as well, at much lower minimums. Um, great way to get opportunity exposure very quickly. I mean, you can you could take an hour in your pajamas and download 10 or 20 apartment deals on crowdfunding sites. You know, that's how easy it is now. It wasn't like that when I started back in 2002 at all. Um, another way to find deals is you can enjoy investor groups. So most investor groups are structured as intermediaries and they'll find deals and send them to their investor base. Again, they're going to be taking a portion of the profits and maybe some type of management fee as an intermediary but another great way to find deals. You can also post up like biggerpockets.com, I believe is the biggest real uh, network of real estate investors in the US online. You could theoretically post up and ask for deals. Now I'd be very careful with this because you're gonna get a lot of people. <laughs> so I would say like anybody invest with some sponsors they really like, no sponsors respond, like no responses from sponsors, you know, like, you know, that's, and you may get some, you know, there's a lot of people on there. So a lot of them are small, single family and small multifamily active investors, but there are still some past investors on there as well. And finally, um, if you'd like, you can listen to podcasts just like this. Um, a lot of the times on these podcasts, you'll find sponsors on there. You can actually listen to what they're up to, evaluate them, and decide if you want to contact them. There's a ton of great podcasts out there, and there's just endless amount of content. So that's another great route to look at for potentially finding opportunities. Yeah, it's definitely easier than ever to, to find folks to, to invest with. 
it's funny you, you mentioned the bigger pockets post. I, I remember seeing a couple of posts on LinkedIn where there was a passive investor that said, Hey, I'm a passive investor. If anybody has any deals to invest in, you know, private message me. I was like, Oh my gosh, they're going to get lit up. <laughs> yeah, that's something I would be very careful with. The higher quality sponsors are not like going on LinkedIn and actually contacting people, right? They're already going to have an investor base. And that's the tricky part, you know? The ones that are doing a lot of marketing are often the newer ones, whereas the more experienced ones don't have to do that. And so the hardest part is to find the really good ones by having to do that networking. And so I'm not going to like, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. The networking is a lot of work, but it can yield a lot of really good deals over time. It just takes some time to build it up. Yeah, for sure. You had mentioned uh, crowdfunding. So what's kind of the difference between investing in a crowdfunding site and investing in kind of a typical real estate syndication? Great question. So, you know, the term crowdfunding is a bit of a misnomer for real estate specifically, because if you look at the majority of the crowdfunding websites, they're actually not using the crowdfunding laws. So technically, they're actually not crowdfunding. So, for example, um, Realty Mogul, um, in the traditional deals that it does, you're being pulled together with other investors into an LLC in what's called a Reg D, Regulation D offering, a 506, uh, typically a B or C. I'm not quite, I don't remember exactly which structure they used. And that's the same as investing directly with the sponsor. The only difference is that they will have you log in, they'll pre-screen you. And then within that firewall or behind the firewall of the login, then you can look at deals, but they call it crowdfunding, right? It's like crowdfunding. The real crowdfunding are the laws that passed back in 2015 and 16 that are called Reg CF and Reg A+. Um, they were not the best suited um, structures for real estate syndicators. And the reason is because Reg A+, takes months to get approved on. And so by the time that happens, you can't buy a property. You can predetermine to do that for a fund. And some people have done that. Um, the advantage to Reg A plus is that you used to be able to raise 50 million and have accredited and non-accredited investors. Uh, now you can actually raise up to 75 million. It's going to change, I think, in January. They just increased it. So that's becoming even more favorable. Um, now, Reg CF, which is the very kind of low maintenance, you can get it launched in a week type of structure uh, and low cost from a legal perspective. That was limited to 1.07 million um, until recently. And that's just not practical for a lot of real estate syndicators who are buying, let's say, five to $25 million buildings, right? Or 10 to $25 right. million. Buildings. But there was a law that just changed now that they're, I think, is being enacted in January that now they raise that to 5 million. I think that's actually going to be one of the ways that there's a lot more real estate deals posted in true crowd, crowdfunding structure, along with the fact that those would be able to be. Uh, those are allowed to be traded on the, actually those have a one-year restriction as well to be traded, but then they can be traded on the platforms that I mentioned, the stock exchanges that will eventually come up, Start Engine being the first. And so um, those are the two real crowdfunding uh, structures that exist right now, but most of the crowdfunding websites don't use them. Gotcha. Interesting. So there'll be some changes coming ahead. I think that it's going to change and evolve. I think it's going to take some time. There's a lot of tricky restrictions. So for example, Reg CF only allows an issuer to do one offering a year, I believe. Mm -hmm. Are there ways around it? Like, so that's just one $5 million offering, but are there ways around it? Um, you know, I, I haven't looked at the laws to really understand it fully yet because um, it just changed. Um, you know, the Reg A plus is tricky because you got to think of it, you know, way ahead. And there were some, and there's continue to be some restrictions. So for example, there used to be a restriction for accredited investors couldn't invest, I think more than, either 10% of their net worth or 10% of their income in a given opportunity or whatnot. But so there are some restrictions that made it more restrictive than doing a Reg D offering, for example. And again, I'm not an attorney, but I know there were some restrictions. I'm not, I think those just changed as part of some of the law amendments to make it easier. And I think that the, the liquidity, I think that whole liquidity aspect, I think what's going to happen, 
you're going to be able to continue to invest in these typical Reg D offerings without liquidity or with more difficult liquidity at the current structures. And I think you'd be able to find more liquid structures that are tradable much more quickly, but with lower returns. Because I think there's going to be a gotcha. trade-off. I think you're going to get a lower preferred return and lower splits probably um, in exchange for liquidity. And an investor is going to have to choose. Do you want to have all liquid, e-liquid, higher returns? Do you want to have all liquid, lower returns? Or do you want to have a mix? And I could see it like a full-time investor like me eventually doing a mix of the both. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. There's always a trade-off, right? Yes. So I, but I think that's coming up. And I think if we were having this conversation a year from now, we'd probably be able to talk about some live deals as my guess. Yep. Yep. All right, man. Well, let's jump into the freedom four. It's time for the freedom four. So what's the best thing you do to keep your mind and body healthy? Um, Great question. So I think the best thing I do is I am very consistent with the Stairmaster. Um, now <laughs> I, do, I do about 30 to 40 minutes a day. I typically do it six or seven days a week. I, I bought one and have it in my house. Um, I will say the thing that I do that's not good is that I'm very often on a phone call while I'm on it instead of like just relaxing. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I do definitely do the Stairmaster six, seven days a week. And I just know for a long time, we're doing it for about 30, about 30 years now consistently. And I'm pretty convinced it's very helpful. Nice. Nice. Um, in an alternative universe where you weren't involved in real estate, what else would you be doing? I think my best guess would have something to do with cars. Uh, I'm a car guy. <laughs> uh, I've worked at, you know, Toyota headquarters, GM headquarters. Um, I'm just, you know, passionate about cars. Cars are changing a lot. What, you know, I think in 10, 15 years, it's going to be a lot more electric. And then that's going to, I'm, I'm kind of sad that that's happening. I like the sound of an engine and stuff, but, it, and I, and, you know, I guess the alternative universe is what I was doing before I was involved with cars, but I'd probably be doing it in a different way, whether I own a car shop or what it would be. Um, you know, I'd be doing it a bit of a different way. Yeah. Are you a car collector by any chance? No, I, I cannot help, but put my money back into investing. Yeah. <laughs> so, nice. Smart man. <laughs> yeah. In fact, it's funny. I was looking at buying a car just yesterday and like, I, I, I've never owned more than one car ever. Um, and so it's going to be a hard bar for me to like get past like a big hurdle to like say to myself, have a car sitting here. Like I don't need when that money yeah. could be, in. you know, it's tough. Well, that's why you're where you're at today, man. <laughs> Good decisions yeah. like that. Yeah, I kind of very much believe in very delayed gratification, but I'm getting now older and I'm starting to wonder whether I should at least have a little gratification. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So where were you at five years ago and where do you see yourself and in your investing five years from now? Yeah, good question. So, you know, ironically, five years ago, so where, I, where I'm at today is I'm kind of on the sidelines. I've been waiting. In fact, I've been on the sidelines mostly since the end of 2016 from a cycle time perspective. So go back five years, then we're back in 2015, I was still actively, much more actively investing. Um, I think in five years from now, I'll be actively investing at that time, probably through that cycle. And uh, to be honest, though, like, you know, just from a day to day perspective, not much, not much has changed. I still network, I still try to find deals, I'm trying to grow my snowball in this exact space that was happening five years ago today, and even five years from now, I think. So my number one goal has always been to build up enough cash flow to never have to go back to the corporate world. And just continue that cash flow growing so that I really didn't have to worry. And so I'm hoping in five years from now, that'll be a bigger snowball than it is today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're living the dream right now, man. <laughs> well, technically, yeah, I have a lot of control over my schedule, but it's still a lot of work because I'm in so many deals and I also yeah. have my own investor group. So that takes some work. And so you, everyone, you know, I, I, I don't sit on the beach all day. I live in LA. Like I work very hard. <laughs> um, people will be surprised, I think. I'm yeah. also not that personality, but it's, um, you know, the flexibility and stuff is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. That's for sure. 
but I, I'm a, I kind of put the pressure on myself to just keep evolving, you know? Yep. Absolutely. I think that rolls right into the last question. Uh, how has passive income made your life better? Oh, it's just changed everything. I mean, it, uh, you know, I, I don't want to sound like an infomercial, but it literally changed <laughs> everything. I mean, I used to go into an office and I used to have a great job, but I never really felt like I was maximized by maximizing my potential. Now I don't have to go into an office, which is more efficient. I get to be at home surrounded by my kids, especially during COVID, but even without that. And I basically get to create my own schedule. If I want to take off next week, I theoretically can. Um, and the best part about it for me is that I always felt like I was able to maximize the long run potential for myself and my family, both just for me personally, but also for our net worth in general. And that's something that I was not doing neither of those, I think, in the corporate world. So that's how the cash flow truly changed my life. Um, it's done a ton of stuff for me. Other, I mean, you know, um, without getting too much detail, like my son was a year, year and a half old. Um, he had a very bad virus, actually ended up on a ventilator for seven days, almost passed away, had to have three uh, surgeries, airway, and was in the hospital, the ICU for two weeks, was in the hospital for two months, and I had to go back to the hospital again. So I was able to sit in the hospital 24-7, either myself or my wife with my other kid, um, because of the cash flow. I, I can't even imagine in the corporate world what would have happened, because I probably would have burnt yeah. through some paid time off, and I would have been on maybe unpaid leave, right? And then I would have been, depending on how that long went on for, like how much tolerance does the employer have to let you keep your position, right? So the cash flow has really been helpful in a lot of ways. It can really, you know, be, you know, hugely helpful and really, and overall, it just completely changed my life for the better. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that story, man. I mean, that just shows how meaningful it can be just in a, you know, even when something bad happens that you're able to be there. Yeah. I, I mean, I could have cleared my schedule for a year if I needed to, you know, I would have fallen behind on my own goals for, for, you know, what I call work, which is, this is work, but um, yeah, if it was necessary now, imagine if that happened, if you had a job, you depend on someone else giving you permission for that and stuff. It just, yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy. And I mean, to be honest with you, at this point, I take for granted the cash flow because I'm so used to it. I yeah. almost can't picture not having it, but it's amazing how much it really just lends to have a ton of freedom. Probably just as much as you couldn't imagine not having your W2 paycheck at the time, right? That's exactly <laughs> right. You know, you're exactly right. Like I was, my, my plan all along was just work my way up at the corporate world slowly, but surely and have that security. And thank God the last strong moment happened that led me to have the courage to leave the cash flow that allowed me to leave. And then, you know, that courage, so to speak, allowed me to leave as well. But had that not happened, I'd still be in the corporate world today, probably in a pretty good company, but probably not totally happy. So. Right. right. Jeremy, thanks for sharing today. Your story is incredible. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, people are welcome to email me for sure. I'm happy to help any way that I can. Uh, my email is jroll, J-R-O-L-L at Roll Investments, R-O-L-L Investments with an S dot com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com is the best way to reach me. Awesome, man. Really appreciate you coming on today. No problem. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I just hope that this episode was helpful for uh, your listeners. Oh, I know it was. Thanks again. Oh, no problem. Thank you. All right. Jeremy crushed that interview. He successfully escaped the rat race by investing passively in only five short years. Just think about that. Nowadays, he's busy doing, well, whatever he wants. I've got something special for you guys. It's a new free guide. Just go to escapethebillable.com. That's escapethebillable.com and get your free copy right now. Until next time, celebrate the journey.
Thank you for listening to the Passive Income Attorney Podcast with Seth Bradley. Do you want more ideas on how to generate multiple streams of passive income? Then jump over to PassiveIncomeAttorney.com for show notes and resources. Then apply for the private Facebook community by searching for the Passive Income Attorney on Facebook. And we'll see you on the next episode.